0: Some things are hard to control, like the volume at a music festival. Other things are easy to control, like your in-home Wi-Fi. With Xfinity XFi, you get fast speeds and the ultimate control over your home Wi-Fi network with the XFi app. You can do things like see which devices are online and how long they've been connected, or set a Wi-Fi curfew for that someone who checks social media at 3 in the morning. So go ahead and take control of your Wi-Fi with Xfinity XFi. It's simple, easy, awesome. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store to learn
1: more. Xfinity internet required. Other restrictions apply. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Article.
0: Articles inspired by mid-century modern and Scandinavian simplicity. They're an online-only furniture company that offers beautiful furniture.
1: Why do they sell online exclusively? Because price matters, and no retail stores means that they don't have to pay expensive rent and charge you more.
0: You've heard me talk about how much I love my chicha alpaca throw. Yeah, I have. I love it. It's a really lovely blanket that is comfortable, but it's also a design statement. Because like all of the article stuff, it looks great in my living room.
1: You know that of an evening, I like to expound on my Bamba poofs. I do know that. They are gorgeous. You can sit on them. You can sit on another chair, put your feet up on them. You can use them as a little table.
0: And here's your chance to save $50 off of a purchase of $100 or more. Just go to article.com slash West and then your discount will be applied to your purchase.
1: Once again, that's article.com slash Go to article.com and check out the goods. Chicha! Poof!
0: You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Shirwe. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we're talking about the season finale of season five. It's called Memorial Day.
1: It was written by John Sacred Young and Josh Singer. It was directed by Christopher Missiano, and it first aired on May 19th in the year 2004.
0: Here's a little synopsis. Memorial Day is a season finale, and in it, President Bartlett wrestles with what to do in response to the killing of American officials in Gaza. But even as he weighs the options, the situation keeps escalating, with Israel and Palestine attacking each other in retaliation and counter-retaliation. Meanwhile, Josh finds himself being used as a proxy for back channels with the Palestinian Prime Minister, and Charlie and Toby try to ready the president for throwing out the first pitch at an Orioles game in Camden Yards. Coming up later, we're going to talk with one of the writers of this episode, Josh Singer. He's an Oscar winner for the film Spotlight, which he co-wrote. He also co-wrote The Post, and he wrote the new film First Man. How about that? That's a good get. Yep. But first, let's talk about this episode a little bit. Josh, what did you think?
1: Uh, I liked this episode. I thought a good continuation of The Last and a good end of the season, I like the very last moment itself. We don't have to begin at the last moment, but uh, I like the heft of this episode and where it kind of leaves us as we look forward to the next season. Let's take
0: a second maybe before we even discuss the granular parts of the episode itself and um, just reflect on the fact that this is the end of the season. This is our season five finale, as well as the show's. It's major. You know, this is my first time watching this season as has been widely discussed by us. And people told me a lot of negative things about season five before I watched it. And I think some of those comments set my expectations pretty low. And I'm happy to say that the show consistently surpassed my expectations.
1: I'm delighted to hear it. Yeah. That is good news.
0: Let's review a little bit. There are a lot of casualties in season five. This is Memorial Day and Fitzwallis gets brought home here. But there are also characters that we've lost to uh, death by being written out, I guess. Like Mandyville... Is no longer just for Mandy. RIP to the characters Angela Blake, mm-hmm. Jack Sosa, Ryan Pierce. Ryan Pierce. And Marina. Angela Blake, Jack Sosa, Ryan Pierce, and Marina all introduced in this season and shown the door.
1: Yeah. And shown the door off camera.
0: Yeah. Angela Blake faded away without a mention. We got a good, satisfying end for Ryan Pierce as played by Jesse Bradford, I thought.
1: Yeah. We know what he's off to, and he's been promoted up and out of the show. Yeah. And I think that was
0: satisfying. Jack Sosa, so we talked to Wilson Cruz, and we, you know, we found out that was just a little bit of a, you know, one and a half off, one and a tenth off. But Rena just disappeared.
1: Yeah, she evaporated. <laughs> her
0: last episode was The Supremes. And I was appreciating her as a character more and more. I'm not gonna say that I am totally miss her, but in Simove, she told us she had a little girl. And it, to me, it felt like an indication that there was a lot more depth to be explored with her character, like, you know, a last name.
1: Yeah, they could have made that commitment. You're right. That would have been nice. But no, that's it for that
0: character. So no closure there. But Kate Harper is clearly coming back.
1: She's here to stay. Yes, she's, she's made quite an impression. Yeah, I like her a lot. I'm glad you mentioned all those uh, minor characters because they did add flavor to season five.
0: Yeah, this is our in-memoriam reel for season five. That's right. Pour one out. Yeah. Some other things that have been... Uh, irreparably damaged, maybe? Or I don't know, in season five, if not killed, then changed forever, maybe? The playful dynamic between the president and the first lady?
1: Mm, Yeah, we haven't, they haven't uh, bounced back by season's end. No.
0: I mean, they're, they're certainly better than they were at the beginning, but it feels like a different relationship. Toby and Will's friendship. I was just thinking about when Toby announces he wants to, he tells Leo he wants Will to be the deputy. Leo says to Toby, Listen, Will did a
2: great job. And I like him personally, too. But he had a bad meeting with that public affairs guy, and people at State are focusing a lot of displeasure on him. I told him to have a bad meeting with that public affairs guy. I know. And I want to use him again, but I need friends at State right now, so I want him to work under the radar. He should work out of his house and deal with us by phone. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Except the part about him working under the radar in his house on the phone. Leo, I want the president to appoint him deputy.
0: Right. That feels like a long ago era. Distant past, yes. And maybe, for me, the biggest casualty of this season was a level of likability to our characters overall.
1: Mm, Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's why some people tag this season as a low point or a downer. But I think there's also something to be said for getting to the less attractive depths of some of our characters, too. I, kind of, I like that, I guess, is what I'm saying. I've often bridled against the sort of hero worship of these characters. So, I kind of like when we get to see the lesser side and the more human aspects of these guys. Hmm. You know, I, I was thinking about
0: how in this episode at the, at the very end, when the president and Leo
2: are in the tunnel the most important moment of your presidency, and you're gonna blow it because you're human. You're a father who almost lost- You think this is about Zoe? You're damn right it's about Zoe, and Ellie, and Elizabeth, and Mallory.
0: I was glad that they brought that storyline back, you know, to cast a long and sort of unfun shadow. I thought it was reasonable that it cast such a long shadow, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. that much fun to watch. And I thought maybe that is my takeaway from this season in relation to what you're talking about in terms of their likability. You know reasonable but not so fun
1: yeah i think that's a fair
0: assessment how about great things that you liked about season five do you have any favorite aspects of it nothing really jumps out (laughs) for me i will say i think donna's storyline her evolution in this season is i I really enjoyed that
1: that's what i meant to say
0: (laughs) you know for four seasons she basically didn't really evolve even as other characters did here and there. And I thought this was really interesting. You know, there are some ways in which she's growing apart from Josh and some ways in which she's just growing up in her job. And the way that Angela Blake introduced that dynamic and the way that CJ kind of encouraged it, I, I thought all of that stuff was really neat. Yeah, so Donna's my favorite thing about season five.
1: Yeah, she perhaps had the greatest uh, character development over this season.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I suspect you're right. One thing I also
0: liked it's more of an absence of something, so it's a little bit harder to really feel, I think. But one thing that we never really discussed in this season is DSX Machina. Yeah, which is something that I felt like came up in the Sorkin era.
1: It was less of a go-to
0: uh, device in this season, you're saying? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, whether it's in the pilot and it's, the, you know, the president and the lambs of God or in Stackhouse Filibuster, you know, Donna and her superhuman intuition about uh, Stackhouse and his grandchildren. I mean, right. there weren't those kinds of huge leaps. And I liked that. Those are little things that would sometimes mar episodes that I love in the first four seasons.
1: Interesting. So would you you would choose that as illustrative of Aaron's years and the device that he, he liked to go to?
0: I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, certainly it got sprinkled in. Certainly wasn't a thing that happened commonly, but it happened.
1: I think what you're describing points out a tendency of Aaron's which is a less one of John's which Aaron writes and he does it very very well and I guess perhaps at times less so for you but he likes to write fairy tales and I think the show was a little bit more of a wish fulfillment Hmm. fairy tale under his four seasons than we've seen in this season Mm -hmm. and i guess that probably more than anything speaks to the two men who are running the show Mm -hmm.
0: i think you're right yeah i have another category in our yearbook superlatives here yes i'm gonna give most underrated character to bob russell Mm. again it was communicated to me that this character was going to be just terrible and I like Bob Russell. I think he's an interesting character. I think that Gary Cole did a great job, and I think that the writers did a great job providing the administration of foil through him. I like him. I think he's a a neat dynamic, and I think uh, I liked how he was wily and kind of underestimated at times and proved himself to be more savvy than people gave him credit for.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like more often than not, Russell has proven himself to be in all ways better than we've come to expect uh, You know, again and again. He sort of steps over the bar that has been set for him mm-hmm. very low, mm-hmm. which makes me think that maybe, I guess, it really is Will's character that people are reacting to negatively when they do react. I used to think it was his going to work for Russell, you know, explain the whole thing for those who don't like Will. But then I I watched this and I'm like, I can totally see what Will sees in him.
0: Yeah. And I don't have any problems with Will in this season either, except for the moments where he was very underused, you know, and was Clippy, the Microsoft Office paperclip
1: just showing up. Yes, he got a little annoying as the Greek chorus or the, yes, as the paperclip. Yeah. There were plenty of instances where he could have not been used, and that would have been maybe a better call. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, now it looks to me like they were kind of, I guess, it's the employment version of throwing me a bone by keeping me in. But as I watch it, I'm like, what's he doing there? (laughs) I literally even just physically, like, what's he physically doing there? (laughs) Why is he there?
0: Why is he leaning into the door jamb that way?
1: Right, exactly. (laughs) But at least they got rid of Ryan. So it was only one guy constantly just walking around the halls and (laughs) (laughs) leaning in.
0: I think I will have to rewatch the season to really uh, get some definitive feelings about this. But I think that my favorite episodes of this season were Full Disclosure, The Supremes, and No Exit. Mm -hmm. I remember two of those. Full Disclosure is the one where uh, CJ goes and uh, confronts the vice president. You know, Matheson comes back.
1: Now I remember that one, too. That one I mainly remember for giving us the ability to spend an entire podcast saying, Full Disclosure. (laughs) I thought the lighting was really good. Yeah.
0: Okay. And so now to maybe my least favorite thing about season five, and I don't know if this is a thing, but it was introduced in this episode. So this is also my segue into us discussing the episode more specifically, is the dynamic and the bond between the president and Leo in trouble? Because based on this episode, I would say that it is. There's this moment, you know, as they go from the president and Leo arguing and and the president saying,
2: I'm the guy in the office, Leo. I'll be the one who's judged.
0: And then cutting to the flashback and the president saying to, to Leo, even as he's about to go out into the public, he says to Leo,
2: It should be you, Leo. You, not me.
0: Which is all fine. You know, that that doesn't seem so crazy. But there's a look that John Spencer gives, the performance that he gives. Leo has this gleam in his eye that, for the first time, it seems like maybe Leo agrees with him.
1: I thought the same thing, too, as I watched it. And it also seemed somehow, I guess, deeply meaningful to him that Bartlett said it.
0: Yeah, it's one thing to be like, oh, that was awfully nice of you. But this is, it, it, yeah. in the context of this, and, and in my interpretation of it, this is Leo remembering this moment. He's like, oh, yeah, even the president thinks I should have been the president. It gives him this sense of...
1: <laughs> As I was like, I knew that, but I didn't realize you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it should be me, but it's nice to hear you say it.
0: I mean, it's uh, this is a huge bummer for me. This feels like maybe it tears at the suspension of disbelief that Leo, who has been so staunchly the guy behind the guy, would actually be like, you know what? Maybe, like, to me, this seems like Leo thinking about that the president shouldn't be the president and that he should be the one in charge. Like, beyond the way that he is often the one in charge as chief of staff, you know, he is the second most powerful person in the White House already.
1: Well, what happens in present day of this episode leads you to think that there's a personal interrelational fissure beyond the actual decision they're discussing.
0: I guess the tenor of their discussion about military force, we've had this kind of conversation before where the, where leo says look you have to dig in and th- this is yeah i know you don't feel comfortable with military action but this is part of the job there was something different about it here where leo is just upset with the president for wanting to be cautious for wanting to take his time yeah that's true
1: i also like the contrast between leo remonstrating with if that's the way to put it commander harper in the situation room what do you
3: think you're doing excuse
1: me
2: We don't push agendas here.
1: I don't believe I am. I'm trying to give him the relevant information.
2: This isn't the UN. He's not the Secretary General. He's President of the United States, and our job is to make sure his priorities are clear.
1: And then we see Leah throughout the episode. Leo himself has a different relationship. He's going to absolutely lay in and lay on and get his... Uh, so I sort of like that we see him say, hey, hold back there to uh, Commander Harper. And then we see in his personal relationship with the president, he's absolutely going to, uh, you know, more than lobby him. He's really going to try to pressure him into uh, the decision that I guess Leo would make. Yeah.
0: I think you're right, though, that there isn't necessarily something so specific in the present tense that makes me feel that way. It's more the, the fact... In the moment of them arguing at Camden Yards and the president saying, I'm the one who's going to be judged, and then cutting to the president saying, it should be you, Leo. That juxtaposition and then the look in Leo's eyes makes me think, oh, Leo thinks this as well. It should be you.
1: Well, for sure, the stakes are high. The stakes are very, very high in both the macro and micro levels. And so we get the sense that perhaps there could be a break in their relationship.
0: Yeah. I want to go back, though, to the part that you were talking about with Leo and Kate Harper in the sit room. That felt jarring to me as well. I was like, what is Leo on in this episode? Like, he has never talked to somebody in the sit room like that. Even people with whom he patently disagrees. You mm-hmm. know, they're saying, hey, we should do this. He will be like, that is the wrong caller, You know, he'll tell the president something else. But then to sort of go over to, to Kate after the president leaves and kind of give her a talking to and, and like... Putting her in her place. Well, but he does. He, he does, yeah. It just felt not fun to watch, and I was disappointed in it, especially as, to whatever extent, Kate is supposed to be the stand-in for Nancy. You know, Leo and Nancy would have their own dynamics, but he certainly right. isn't, he isn't giving her that kind of respect.
1: Right. Well, he's not going toe-to-toe with Commander Harper on the issues, He's putting her in her place. Yes, yes. He's saying you got to understand how this works. The way you're acting is inappropriate. Yeah, which it isn't. I would think not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would think that uh, her job is to do what she's doing and to lay out what she thinks. Yeah. But I also I guess he also feels that uh, I don't know we're getting so, you know, Leah's got a sort of a hawkishness to him.
2: He says today's priority is not world peace.
1: Right. What a line. Yeah. That's a great line of dialogue, I thought. Like, yeah. wow, he's just he's just laying it out there. He's
0: just saying it. I would say it's a bombshell if it weren't uh, too literal of a line.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. So th- I'm hoping that this is a dynamic that's introduced here in the finale, but I, I really hope that um, this is the biggest cliffhanger to me, is like, what's going to happen between Leo and the president? Which is not a fun... Cliffhanger.
2: Bombing Gaza could be the most dangerous move this country has made in two centuries. Or not. In 75 years, we'll know if we're right or wrong, but nobody standing here today can tell me that with any certainty.
0: Jumping to another part of this episode, I really like the line that Josh has when he's trying to go see Donna. He says,
2: I work for the president of the United States. I have the diplomatic rank of a three-star general. Tell me where Donna Moss is.
0: And it is not, although Josh can be prone to bragging or whatever this is not the moment where he's doing that he's doing whatever he can to try and get in the room and it's just a cool detail to find that out that the deputy chief of staff is that true you think i think that is oh i didn't i just seemed like something to say i don't know i didn't look it up but i'm buying (laughs) and i like it. (laughs) oh that's funny i'm willing willing to go with
1: it to me it was very much like the way the guys go into the police station in celestial navigation it's like that don't you know who we are kind of thing
0: really yeah when he says uh he's, the nurse says are you a relative he says i work for the president of the united states i have a diplomatic rank of a three-star general tell me where she is i guess so
1: i thought it was annoying <laughs> really yeah why don't you just explain the situation then <laughs> she wouldn't stop for red lights if he were hurt i guess so he won't stop for
0: inquisitive nurses
1: I, apparently not yeah oh i wrote down uh not super cool of Josh to watch news coverage of the bus bombing in Donna's <laughs> hospital room. <laughs> I'm like, dude, put on a little Bob Ross or something maybe a little more soothing for the bomb victim behind you. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe not CNN covering the bomb, the bus blast.
0: You know, a fun fact about Bob Ross? He has the diplomatic rank of a three star general. <laughs>
1: I believe that. <laughs> I like, at the very, I guess, the cold open. Uh, first of all, we get. Natalia Nogolic, actress of Serbian descent, uh, playing the Israeli ambassador. She does a good job. I think she's also a um, an Atlantic Theater Company uh, type person. I remember being aware of her, maybe knowing her back uh, in New York when I knew all those guys. And I like that President Bartlett is trying to kind of hammer at her and against further Israeli retaliatory action. Mm -hmm. And she poses him a question and basically says,
3: Mr. President, we received
1: information on the whereabouts of a man responsible for the repeated killing of our citizens. We had a specific location and little time. Would you have done any differently? And we sort of get a moment where he doesn't have much of a response, and then just seconds later, uh, yeah. Harper comes in, and, and basically we have a president who is confronted with a similar situation, and uh, we're going to find out what, it, what is he going to do. I just thought it was cleverly and timed and well-written.
0: I thought so, too. I actually thought at first, the first time I was watching it, I heard that line and I thought, oh, is she talking about Sharif? Huh. You know, th- there was a conversation between Fitz and Leo where Fitz says...
2: We measure the success of a mission by two things. Was it successful and how few civilians did we hurt? They measure success by how many? Pregnant women are delivering bombs. You're talking to me about international laws? The laws of nature don't even apply here. I've been a soldier for 38 years and I found an enemy I can kill. He can't cancel Sharif's trip, Leo. You've got to tell him he can't cancel it. And that is, you know, that
0: ends up leading them to prompting the president to... That's right. ...ordering the, uh, the hit. And, of course, Israel got drawn into that. And so I thought maybe she was talking about that. And then this double whammy of the next, very next scene, suddenly now he has to answer the very question that she's posed uh,
1: to him. Boom. Yeah, immediately. Yeah, I thought that was great.
0: Oh, one other thing I, I liked. That was also sort of a callback, but there wasn't really any attention drawn to it. When Josh comes back to the hospital after his spy mission, he comes back to uh, find Donna's room is empty and, and there's bloody bandages on the ground. And when he finally gets some answers, he finds out that she's developed a pulmonary embolism and they say,
3: It's, it's a blood clot. We're trying to remove it now.
0: He knows exactly what it is, mm-hmm. because I don't know if you remember this, that's what killed his father. Mm, I didn't remember that. Yeah back in mm. In the Shadow of Two Gunmen Part Two.
2: Josh, governor, your father died, Josh. I can't believe it. What happened? He uh, went in for his chemotherapy and he unexpectedly developed what's called a pulmonary embolism. It's a, uh, it's a blood clot. Yeah. Went to his heart and there was cardiac arrest. Wow,
1: heavy, yeah.
0: So between the you know collapsed lung and the pulmonary embolism, I thought this, it's a nice way of drawing Donna even closer to him. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's sort of like the pilot who flew into the side of the mountain, having the same birthday as Josh mm-hmm. and uh, Noel. There are these markers. I mean, she's not just in danger. Her health isn't just uh, at risk. There are these markers that bring Josh back to these other moments of trauma.
1: Is it possible that the entire series is a Josh Lyman fever dream? st elsewhere style Saint elsewhere yeah right i guess we'll find out i guess we'll find out in the coming season but i thought
0: that was really nice again there's no attention brought to it, it was like oh yeah i know what that is because my dad had nothing like that it's just right. a little moment that if you've been paying attention to the show you, you
1: get this <laughs> hey, gr- hey don't you have to rub it in
0: <laughs> i thought that was really great little subtle tidbit of writing
1: yeah now that i know i agree <laughs> well there's
0: a lot more to talk about let's go to our interview with our guest josh singer and uh, we can get into it and find out some more from um, the perspective of one of the people who created it why not all right let's take a quick break and then when we come back we'll be joined by josh singer
1: the west wing weekly is sponsored by Simply Safe. If you've been thinking about getting a Simply Safe home security system but have been waiting for the holidays when all the tech deals come out, well played. <laughs> you've made a smart move. Right
0: now we can get you a great deal on Simply Safe. If you go to SimplySafe.com slash Westwing, you'll get twenty five percent off any new system. Hey,
1: that's a deal. They rarely do anything like this, but they're doing it just for us, just for the holidays.
0: Simply Safe is great protection for your home and your family. They don't make you sign a contract, and there's no hidden fees
1: and they're getting awesome reviews CNET, PC Mag and Wirecutter all say Simply Safe is the best security system there is.
0: So if you're looking for a security system and want a great deal, go to simplysafe.com/westwing to save 25%. Make sure to use that URL because
1: it really does help out the show. It sure does. So that's simplysafe.com/westwing and hurry up. The deal ends November 26th. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way for you to create a beautiful website. No matter what you do, you will find a template that will help you get your stuff onto the web.
0: Whether you're making a website for your business, your artwork, your music, or your podcast or anything else, it's an easy way to get up and running
1: online. That's right. That's what we did. Squarespace is the engine behind the groovy West Wing Weekly website.
0: That's right. We used one of their beautiful templates to get started, and maintaining the website is so easy, even Josh could do it. That's saying something. So, check out squarespace.com/westwing for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or
1: domain. That's squarespace.com/westwing and use offer code westwing at checkout. And now, back to the show. We're joined
0: now by Josh Singer, who co-wrote this episode, and uh, this is actually, I believe, your very first teleplay for The West Wing.
3: That's correct. Uh, I helped out on the stormy present, but uh, this was my first teleplay credit.
1: It's very exciting to welcome uh, yet another Yaley, yet another acapella enthusiast, and yet another fellow Oscar winner. Oh, no, wait, I haven't won an Oscar.
3: <laughs> Former cappella enthusiast. Former rock's Oscar winner, too, I guess. And for anybody who doesn't know,
0: Josh Singer won an Oscar for Best Screenplay for Spotlight in 2016.
3: Yeah, it's actually half an Oscar because I won it with Tom McCarthy. So it's actually, it's funny because they take the little man and they cut him right in half. So it's it's, <laughs> it's this very interesting, people always come in and they're like, is that an Oscar? Like, no, it, it's only half. It's <laughs> a,
1: and, and is it really uh, chocolate in the middle?
3: <laughs> with a chewy nougat center.
1: Actually. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, great film. Well-deserved, you, your half your half rough. Oscar is well-deserved, or your full Oscar was half-deserved.
3: That's uh, right, exactly. You know, it's funny because I feel like that I used to say all the time, and I still say now, I really uh, learned to write in the John Wells screenwriting school. And what's a little nice about coming to this particular program is the reason I am a screenwriter is because of The West Wing. I was literally uh, struggling trying to figure out what to do when I was in grad school And I had come out to L.A. to stay with this fellow, Dave Katz, who I had worked at McKinsey with. I was interviewing for law firms out here. Uh, It was between my, I guess, second and third year or third and fourth year uh, in grad school. and Law school? Yeah, I did a a joint law and business degree. And Dave said, you got to watch this show. It's called The West Wing. And I was captivated. It immediately became my favorite, if not the only show I watched on television, I thought the writing was amazing. This was in the, you know, the Aaron Sorkin years. And I also was like, oh, my God, he's having a conversation on a weekly basis with the American people about things I care about. And wow, you can do that. You can have conversations about things you care about, you know, uh, and try to push ideas. And oddly, it was right at the time that Gore lost to Bush and I had gone down to Florida and tried to help out in the recount. Which you know, I was sort of an observer, but wasn't really all that helpful. Obviously,
1: they could use you again. You know, currently. Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs>
1: Head to Florida.
3: But anyway, so I saw the show and I thought, wow, this could be exciting, and this could be the kind of th- It's the kind of thing I would like to do. And so, if it weren't for Aaron creating this show, I never would have. I don't think I would have thought to get into this industry in this way.
0: Well, I'm sure lots of people watch The West Wing and think, this is great television. I would love to write like this. How did you actually make it happen?
3: You know, I finished graduate school. I said to my father, I said, I think I want to write. (laughs) Now that you paid for four years of graduate school. And he was really, he and my mom were incredibly supportive. And he said, how many years are you going to give it? And I said, I'll give it three years. And he said, that sounds about right. And I took a part-time job and moved out to LA. And the part-time job turned out to be a very very little-time job. And I met, you know, actually the Yale connection was quite helpful because my friend Derek Simons, uh, who I'd been in the whiff and poofs with, he actually uh, introduced me to a guy named John Stevens and to another guy named Peter Blake, who were television writers and Peter actually told me, well, what you do is write a spec script, write mock scripts of shows that were on the air. And my favorite show is The West Wing. So I started writing a West Wing spec. Uh, I was dating an Israeli woman at the time who had very far right point of view. And I was reading a lot of Thomas Friedman. So I was more of a lefty. And we started arguing about Israel, Palestine. And I thought, okay, well, this is a good, you know, I literally used all the op-eds we were sending each other as the basis for a script about Israel versus Palestine, because the West Wing hadn't covered that at the time. And the most successful connection came from this sublet, which was random. (laughs) Uh, My friend Sarah Lowe had sort of introduced me to this random woman who was acting and who was dating a fellow by the name of Llewellyn, Llewellyn Wells. And Lou uh, was, as you guys know, the line producer on the West Wing, and his brother, John, was an executive producer on the West Wing. And Lou very kindly offered to read my script when I was done. And he read my West Wing spec, and he liked it. And he had me come up to the Starbucks up in Burbank, the one not far from the Warner Bros. lot. And it was the greatest note session I ever had, because he basically said to me, what do you think is wrong with your script? (laughs) Which was total Socratic method, which I I loved, And I was like, well, I think it needs this, this, and this. And he's like, yeah, that sounds right. And he sort of then brainstormed with me a little bit. He's like, well, when you're done, send it back to me. And so I finished that script and I sent it back to him. And about a month or two later, I got the call that changed my life, which was from Chris Selick and Andrew Stern, who were running John's company. Lou had passed in the script. And what I didn't know was John was taking over the West Wing from Aaron. And so John was going to take some of the writers who were in the room, but he was also looking for new writers. And Chris and Andrew liked my script, and they passed it on to John. And John liked my script. So I was a pretty lucky guy. Uh, so thanks to Lou and John and, uh, and Sarah Lowe, who put me in the sublet, uh, that's how I got on the West Wing.
1: And your dad was psyched.
3: Exactly. I, I think I called them and I literally, I called I call them and I said, mom, dad. And I said, da, 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 <laughs> da. I literally, I was outside. I remember when I got the job because, you know, I had the interview with John and then, you know, it took a while, it took a month or two until things shook out and, you know, uh, and, uh, and I literally was outside of Kinko's and I got the call from my agent and I literally called them and, and sang them the theme because they loved the show and uh, it was pretty exciting.
0: So you were there for the entire fifth season, and this is, as we said, this is your first tell play, but you were you were part of the writer's room the whole time, right? I was. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background before we get into Memorial Day specifically, a little bit about some of the stuff leading into this episode. First of all, Kate Harper. Yeah. is a new character who'd been introduced just a couple of episodes before. Uh, earlier. Can you tell us about how that character was created and and came about, like, what motivated the idea of a new recurring character and sort of what her arc was going to be?
3: I think we'd had a bunch of foreign policy episodes and wanted to do more foreign policy episodes. It was something uh, Peter Noah was very interested in. I was very interested in foreign policy. And we wanted to have an asset as opposed to, you know, We had some incredible actors who'd come in and uh, run Canada, who played our Secretary of State, who's terrific. Ron
1: Canada.
3: He's great, right? But, like, we wanted somebody who would become a regular on the show. Uh, We wanted another strong woman. And we started playing with this idea, as I recall, of a character who... uh, would be, you know, pretty much all business. In my head, she was going to be a little Vulcan, right? A little Spockish, a little, you know, Hmm. nerdy in that way while being also attractive and charming. If you want to
1: apprehend Hassan without escalating the conflict, of course the chairman has consistently chosen violence over peace. He doesn't really have the strength to take on Hamas. He's walked away from offers that would have given his people a Palestinian state, and the Israelis aren't likely to ever sit down to the negotiation table with
3: him again. He's not the answer to the greater problem. He may be the answer to this one. And so we start brainstorming. I'm not sure, uh, I think I pitched the name Kate. It's my sister's name. Which is not really all that big of a deal because you know when it comes to name characters, like a hundred names are thrown out in a room, and like you throw out seventy, you know each writer throws out fifteen. But uh, but Kate is my sister's name, so I was always pleased that the character wound up being named Kate. And yeah, so I love that character. It was actually really fun to write, and incredibly useful. Although I rewatched the episode last night, and um, I had a tendency. <laughs> <laughs> when I start on the show, to get a little uh, thick in the writing, a little dense in the writing. If I have an Achilles heel as a writer, it is it is tending to get a little dense. You know, I remember Alex Graves when we gave him the script for the Stormy Pretez. It literally like had a had a cow, just like some of the density of that material. And I remember also Chris Messina, who God bless him, was. Prepping for Memorial Day while he was shooting episode 21, Gaza, I remember him trying to read my script and saying, it's just dense, it's so dense! (laughs) And this is why he's crapping like on set in front of like Stockard's there, like Martin's there, and I'm like I'm literally, I think I went home and cried myself to sleep that night (laughs) Uh, So for those of you who've just seen First Man and think it's a little dense (laughs) Well
1: that's, that's the trick isn't it? Writing I think a really great episode of the West Wing is the material is dense and how do you write a 44 minute episode that takes on issues of great complexity and yet still moves along in a clip and yet uh, and doesn't just bounce along on the surface
3: you know it's it's funny because um you know carol flynn at some point said well i want to do an episode on mandatory minimums and you know we did it but you know we really only scratched the surface and so I was helping out with the research. And I went back and, and I did all this research into mandatory minimums. And I went back and looked at the episode that and did mandatory minimums. And I realized that what he had done is he had cherry picked the three most important facts about mandatory minimums, the three things that like just grab you, like, you know, about like that, a, you know, a three strike felony can wind up three times a smoking dope can wind up with 10 years in jail, whatever it is, like the most sort of grab you by the collar facts. And he had wound just those three facts into the episodes and nothing else because everything else is super dense and not particularly interesting. And so Carol, what she's trying to write, is stuck with like everything else, which is super dense and not particularly <laughs> interesting. And Aaron had this amazing ability just cherry picked like the three best little tidbits, you know. And so I think it's one of the reasons why his episodes sing and some of our episodes don't quite because <laughs> we get huh. stuck in the muck, as they say. So in going back and watching Memorial Day, I felt very similar to Chris Messiano watching some of these scenes where they're talking about foreign policy. And my head starts turning. I'm like, I can't believe I made viewers watch that. It's so dense. It's just so dense.
1: (laughs) I really like this episode. I think it's an excellent episode. And in addition to all that, you're also giving us flashbacks and you're giving us early Leo Bartlett Relationship. There's a lot going on in this episode.
3: Yeah, you know, so the episode actually came about in a sort of interesting way. I wasn't supposed to write the finale, of course, because I'm, you know, new guy. This was going to be 21. Peters was going to be 20, I think. And then John was going to write the finale, right? Something like that. <laughs> And I'd been pushing, you know, all year to do Israel-Palestine because I'd written my spec on it and I was super excited. And I thought it was something that would be fun to cover, and I knew a bunch about it, and it was something I wanted to write about. And I remember in the room, like then we got this idea. Well, maybe we'll do like a couple episode arc on Israel-Palestine. So we wound up settling on, okay, we would do this episode with Donna and Gaza, and then which Peter Noah wrote beautifully. Although we fought a lot about, like, because we wound up, you know, I was somebody who'd started very far left on this issue. And the more I got to know in talking to all my friends at APAC or who worked with APAC, the more I drifted towards the right. And so I wound up being the guy, and I'm still pretty far left. I mean, I'm a Thomas Friedman, Israel, Palestine guy, as it were. Would you explain what that means? Uh, well, just in terms of, like, where, where you come down on this issue, because it's a thorny one. Yeah. And, you know, are you... You know, I I wouldn't call myself pro-Palestinian, but I actually don't, you know, love the behavior of the Israelis for the last 10, 15 years. And I'm not a huge fan of Netanyahu. But even being, I think, pretty moderate, I was far right in our room. I think Peter, no, was much to my left. And so we had some good back and forth about certain stories used in various episodes and because and, you're making points about this stuff. But um Anyway, so I was writing what was, I guess, going to be episode 21, and I wrote this outline for my episode, and I turned it in, and John sort of came to me. He's like, well, you know, it, you know, he's like, Bartlett needs to be this, you know? And, you know, John would generally say, like, have one great idea, but Bart- and then would go on. He'd be like, Bartlett needs to be this, and that's about all I got. I got to go. So I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> like, I'm done. This is not going very well.
1: Do you remember what his, uh, what the critical point was?
3: He was basically saying that, I think it was about Bartlett being more active. It was a typical, you know, writer's rookie mistake of like lots of stuff happening and yet your main character is not actually active. So Bartlett wasn't particularly active. So he's like, Bartlett needs to be more, I think, active and assertive and wanting, you know, whatever. I think that's what it was, which was actually an incredible note in some ways, you know, the most important note. But the rest of the outline, which was a mess, he basically was like, This is a mess. And I I did have the baseball thing in there because I had asked Lou, I'd say, could we ever go? I love baseball. So I said to Lou Wells, I said, would we ever shoot in a stadium? He's like, well, I don't know. We could look into it. And he basically came back to me while I was writing my outline and said, yeah, we could shoot in Camden Yards. I was like, oh my God. Like that was the greatest thing I could imagine. And so I uh, had written the baseball storyline, which was fun. So that was kind of working. And then there was this Big, huge Israel-Palestine thing that wasn't working at all. And then I didn't really have a B story except Josh and Donna over in the hospital and nothing was happening there. And so John says, well, Bartlett needs to be more aggressive and has to have more of a more active and then left the room (laughs) because this was a real mess. And the other writer starts to leave. And I literally... I don't grab them, but I literally say, guys, you can't leave me. I need help. You can't leave me, really. <laughs> don't and, go. So, and I said, Lawrence, what do I do about this A story? And so Lawrence Lee walked me through how I handle the A story. Like, what are the, you know, and I think he probably came up with the thing where the speech at the top. Tyranny of terror, deathmongers.
2: What is this, Tolkien? The stronger your language now, the more leeway you're I'm not saying it.
3: So I think that was probably Lawrence, you know, because that's a pure, like, brilliant Lawrence. Like, this is actually how these things work. Might have been Eli, but, you know, I, I remember sort of calling Lawrence. And I was like, well, what am I going to do with this Josh and Donna? And Peter Noah, bless him, Peter Noah said, well, what if Josh were a spy? right? What if Josh turned out to be a spy? Which, you know, at first sounded like a pretty goofy idea, but the more Peter talked about it and then, you know, I think a couple other people in the room sort of like said, that's not a bad idea. And we started hashing out like, well, what would that actually look like? And I did a little research and that is my favorite thing of the whole episode is that whole little storyline. So we were supposed to meet Uh, I turned in my first script and like the meeting was canceled or it wasn't the meeting was canceled It was like I think John met with all the producers So essentially any writer with a producer title, which meant that me and Deborah and Mark Goffman and Lauren Schmidt Because they were mostly producers. So it meant like everybody but like the four of us so like I'm sitting in my office, I'm like, oh, I'm definitely going to get fired. This is it. I'm getting fired. And I was like, I thought the script was good. And I think I had made Deborah read it ahead of time. And she she gave me some notes and said, this isn't bad. You know, and so I was like, I thought it was good. What's going on? Oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. And then they came out and John had put John Sigurd Young onto the episode and made it the finale. And he made it the finale because, in truth, he had to write the finale for ER. And I think he was just slammed. And he was like, okay, if I make this the finale, then I can have a group of people bang out 19. You know, I have three or four writers all come together and everybody write, write pieces of 19, which he did, and just slide this down. Basically because this feels like a finale. It feels like something you end the season on. Right? And, you know, if you gin up, you know, is Donna going to make it? And you, you know, have this separate, real separation between Leo and Bartlett, like this, you know, and this big major thing, which is going to lead to Camp David at the beginning of the next season. Like, this feels like a season finale.
1: Also, what kind of pitch did he throw? Let's not forget that. <laughs> Huge cliffhanger.
3: <laughs> right, exactly. Did he hit the mitt? All oh, you hear it hit the mitt.
1: That's true. We call that a flintel on this show—the audio that plays as the closing titles go. It's what a do you big call? flintel.
0: It's just syllables that Josh kind of regurgitated when I, I said we we talked about this phenomenon that happens in the show a lot. The story continues even though the visuals are done. Yeah. Then when you see the executive uh, yeah, producer credit, yeah, 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 yeah. But there's still actually some meat to the story, and uh, we thought that needed a term, and so uh, Josh um, sort of reflexively said flintel.
3: That's good. That's good. That's pretty there. It good. is the pinnacle of my writing career. <laughs> it's pretty good. I don't think I've ever come up with anything that clever. <laughs> Jeez, maybe I should look for another profession.
0: You mentioned the dynamic between Leo and the president here and uh that I think is the most shocking part of this episode. I mean, w- with all of the geopolitical stuff going on and the espionage with Josh and everything, to me the part that was um, you know, that was the most tense was this idea that suddenly for the first time I felt like we were seeing Leo you know, we'd seen leo look at the president and and kind of uh caution against his more dovish tendencies but these couple of moments towards the end of the episode when you start to see this a different kind of take from leo on what the president was doing that was uh really surprising to me and, and really very um effective in terms of the tension
2: how many times have we tried negotiation we're not negotiating with the chairman your priority should be the security of this country
3: I gotta say, John Spencer was the loveliest, loveliest guy. You know, I know he had howled at the moon a bit in his youth, but when we got him, oh my God, I mean, I learned so much not only from the writers of the show, but from the actors. I mean, cause like, what greater thing than coming in and as, and cause John really believed in writers being producers and being on set. And what greater thing is there than sitting on set and watching John Spencer do take after take, right? Alice and Janney do take after take. Richard Schiff, Bradley Whitford. I mean, it's a murderer's row. I'm not even talking about Martin or Stockard. I mean, and, and Johnny. Or me. Or, or Molina, that's true. <laughs> Melina. wow. I mean, I know, uh, I
1: know you were going to get to me. I, just I was going to jump get ahead you.
3: You know, by the fifth season, I'd get to you. But, um, but, uh, but uh, you know, Spencer used to call it riding the horse. And every take was subtly different. It was such a major education for me, and one that has served me, I think, very well on the feature side is, maybe they'll do one take which was in your head. But most of the takes are not going to be anything close to what was in your head. And that's the beauty of it. You know, I, I have to say, if I hadn't had that preparation for Non-Spencer, when I worked on The Post, Meryl Streep is amazing. And what's really amazing is she does a take. And it's not only is it not anything in your head, you as the writer are like, there's no way that takes makes any sense in this moment. It does, it's not what our character is supposed to be doing. And then you see the whole thing cut together and you're like, oh, my God, that was the perfect take for this moment because she understands the story arc better than you do. Huh. And, and so it's truly understanding what collaboration with an actor is, right? And, and I learned that from John, watching him do take after take after take. But I have to say that the flashbacks, so that I cannot take credit for. Uh, that was John Sartre Young's. In some ways, it was his main contribution, at least structurally. You know, And he had notes throughout and whatnot, But, you know, he basically was like, why don't we do some flashbacks? You know, they've been effective previously. And just as a way to illustrate how far apart these guys are. And what's funny is, at the time, I never loved the flashbacks. And watching the movie, the movie, the episode last night, I really enjoyed them. I mean, I really thought they give some nice shape to that falling apart of Leo and Bartlett, which is pretty, uh, it's hard to watch, especially, you know, for fans of the show, you know, who think of, you know, them as mother and father or father and mother, you know. I mean, it's said say Bartlett and Leo have this, you know, marriage. And in some ways, you know, that story, it's richer, right? Because there's so much more to work with because they've been together for so long. That's what this story is with Leo and Bartlett. Like, we've never really, we've seen Leon Bartlett fight, but it's always like a typical, like, a fight you have and then the next day you're fine. Right. It's just, you know, because couples fight because, you know, there's friction naturally. And that's 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 what it is. You're both holding the rope. Right. But this is a fight of colossal size. Right. This is a fight that could destroy our relationship. And to see Leo and Bartlett get this far apart from each other and putting that context of that flashback. So, you know, for those of us who are new to the show or haven't watched all five seasons, Right, who don't understand, oh wow, these how close these two are. You get to see, like, and remind them like Leo put Jed there, right? Leo's the one who made him president in a lot of ways. I can't do this without you. You think I'd like you?
2: There's a reason I've stayed
3: sober. So to have this moment where Bartlett doesn't listen to him right, is actually, and is that, you know, that, to me, one of the toughest moments in the whole episode is when Leo's pushing him in the Oval. And, this is a waste of time. We've
2: tried elevating moderate you. you need Thank to. Thank
3: you. Meaning I'm done, right? And then goes off, and it's a beautiful shot by Missiana. I love it because he's on the mound, right? He goes off in front of the windows. It's like the JFK portrait, but he's got the ball behind him, which is just a, it's a lovely shot with, with martin with the ball behind him and you sense he's on the mound and he's alone right and he's not and he's pushed leo out and it's made much more powerful you know the decision itself is intellectual but the fact that he's alone right that he's pushed away his dearest friend on this that's what makes it emotional right as as is the end of the episode
0: another emotional thing that happens in this arc is that fitz Wallace dies and I thought it was surprising earlier in this season when Terry O'Quinn came in and his character replaced uh, John Amos's character as um, as the Joint Chiefs. And after Fitz gets killed, I was wondering if that had been sort of in the cards all the way back then. If you'd known that you were switching out these characters because you wanted to reserve that card, you know, to, to play it here.
3: You know, it's funny because... Um couple things. First of all, I think Terry O'Quinn was cast, I feel like it was in, I think John Cedric Young, it was John Cedric Young's episode. It might've even been in The Stormy Present where we first meet Terry O'Quinn. But because I remember him being cast and I remember thinking like, I don't know, like this guy, it doesn't feel like he has the weight of John Amos. I don't know, is he really much of an actor? And of course then he's on Lost and he's like the greatest actor ever. And I was a huge fan. He's awesome. it's What's funny is we wanted John Amos for these flashbacks and couldn't get him. It was uh, the first version of the flashbacks were just a tad stronger because they had John Amos in them as opposed to John McRaney, who's, who's terrific. Woodrow Wilson did know a battalion from a battery
2: when he took office. And he did a heck of a job with the Treaty of Versailles. Admiral Fitzwallace thought you might find it reassuring. He did, did he? Alan, thanks for coming up. We'll start the full security briefings next week. Sir, congratulations again, and uh, good luck with the press conference tonight.
3: We got him because we couldn't get John Amos. There was, like, a, a scheduling conflict.
1: Uh-huh. He was either unavailable or mad.
3: Right, exactly. <laughs> Something like that. So that was that was a pretty big bummer. But, you know, and, and I think he might have been mad that we killed him off, but it was how do we make this have some weight, right, for our viewers and so Fitzwallis was sort of a natural candidate of sort of a beloved character who's, you know, who we haven't seen in a while to do that with.
1: I like, there's, there's one line in one of the flashbacks where Bartlett half-jokingly says,
2: Admiral Fitzwallace, remind me to fire that guy.
1: And I thought, you know, a- had he done so, he'd still be alive today. It's like right. those little moments and those little decisions that have great uh, consequence.
3: That, I mean, that is the fun thing with flashbacks, right, is you can always play with that sort of thing.
0: Even though you, you couldn't get John Amos for it, the fact that you were able to get Gerald McRaney back was nice for people who have been following the, the West Wing. And, you know, it's a nice Easter egg because we know that Leo and he have a relationship, yeah, you know, yeah. from, from episodes ago, that he was his uh, commanding officer. And so it was a nice way to kind of tie back to the, the continuity of the, of the show.
3: Oh, right. Is that on k Is that right? Is, is that the episode where he's his commanding officer?
0: It's from um, War Crimes back. In, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in War Crimes, he's the one. In season three, he tells him that Leo could have been prosecuted for whatever this War Crimes legislation means. Uh, Leo could be prosecuted for actions that he took in in the war right
3: yeah and, and 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 again like another great actor i mean you know you look at the i mean it, again so we've got this cast it's like the murderer's row right but then we've also got if you look at the secondary cast uh, uh you know gary cole's in there you know who later becomes you know a much bigger figure in our show but like he's terrific in a in a pretty small role and and i forget the name of the fellow who plays the house speaker but if you watch 13 days i mean he's a wonderful stephen actor Culp. as well stephen cult yeah like so you've got these great great actors at every turn it's again you know i had no idea how good i had it <laughs>
1: Stephen Culp is very good, I, I felt. In this episode, he's got the briefest of appearances, but he's sort of exhorting President Bartlett uh, to action. And there's something in his performance where it's just, uh, there's a genuineness to him where it's sort of the politics fall away and you can see in his face that, that, the, the import of his words. I really like him in this.
2: There's an obvious course of action here. And on that, we stand firmly behind the president. And Bob's right. Politics aside, Leo, he's got to do this.
3: Yeah, he's very good at that sort of thing. Again, if you haven't seen 13 Days, uh, he plays Bobby Kennedy and uh, Bruce Greenwood plays uh, JFK. And it's one of my more favorite political movies.
1: Speaking of Kennedy, I thought uh, President Bartlett, this is just a little thing, has a very Kennedy-esque moment early on when he's giving his statement to the nation. And he says,
2: I ask for your patience while we hunt for answers.
1: I love every now and then. Martin just can't help embodying uh, JFK.
3: You know, it's it's funny because uh, Martin recently told me about uh, meeting Bobby Kennedy at one of his rallies, you know, when Martin was, you know, on Broadway and went to, you know, sit on stage and, you know, and just with such reverence and, you know, and look, you know, uh, Bartlett's from New Hampshire. I mean, he, you know, might come by some of that, uh, that Boston accent naturally. So. Naturally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Another moment I loved in this episode is, um, When we're in Germany in the hospital room and uh, Josh is talking to CJ on the phone, you know, ostensibly trying to tell her a strategic plan for what they're going to do.
2: You need to come out fighting. Leak a force depletion report and blueprints for the invasion.
0: It's language that is you know, not diplomatic at all to talk about what the US is going to do in Palestine. But while that's happening, Colin has come into the room, yeah, yeah. Uh, Donna's room, and that, that was a great Freudian slip. And also, uh, the kind of thing, it's also the kind of slip that you can imagine someone making from the White House podium and... Uh, getting in a lot of trouble.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, that moment with Colin, Brad is just so wonderful, right? I mean, like the way he sort of gets distracted and it's hilarious. I think that was Peter Noah's, uh, he always loved this idea that Donna has this relationship and then Josh has to confront it and confront his feelings or, you know, where is he with Donna? I will say I never thought that Josh and Donna should ever get together. They always felt like Brother and sister to me, just for what it's worth. Um, but I did like writing these scenes, like a and, Game of you know. Thrones brother and sister thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that may be the way it goes. Uh, but um, but yeah, that was that was uh, that was not.
1: I love the uh, that even amidst the greater goings on in this episode, that we get uh, the romantic subplot sort of being inched along, even implicitly. There's a lot of great interplay among Jason and. Janelle and Brad
2: Pretty long flight from Gaza to Germany Not really It's nothing compared to the flight from DC Look, she didn't mention anything You know, if this this is going to be an issue then No, no issue
1: I think they're all, they're all great in this episode and I like their scenes and the jockey. And also, if you ever had any question, you can see in Brad's countenance as Josh, just the way he's looking at oh, so uh, good. Donna in that
3: bed, that he is a, a smitten man. Yeah, it's, it's so good. And Jason Isaac's another fantastic actor who I didn't know much of other than, you know, a little bit of Harry Potter, you know, but he was wonderful and comes on and really is a presence uh, in those, those couple episodes, which is great. Oh, we kind of uh,
0: wandered off of this, but I was wondering if Terry O'Quinn's character, if you had known that you were going to kill off Fitzwallis a, a while ago, and so when you introduced Terry O'Quinn, that was sort of a long ball that you were playing.
3: No, I, I think we were just, um, you know, I think we were just bringing in new blood. You know, you know obviously in, in administrations, people change, you know, people retire, you know, or they're forced out by crazy presidents who don't want people investigating into Russia. But, uh, so, you know, with these kinds of changes, we just naturally, you know, would bring him in. There was no long-term planning in terms of the Fitzwallis of it all. That's something I think we came up with uh, when we were trying to figure out, okay, who do we kill off to make this bomb meaningful? Right, have real stakes. Correct. What do you think was, ended up being the hardest
0: part about making the episode? Were you also on set when they were filming it?
3: I mean, this is, this is the wonderful thing about John Wells is that he really believes in writers as producers. And so he wants his writers, you know, we do tone meetings, we did concept meetings, we would be part of the full-on part of the prep process uh, and then on set. For the entire shoot, and uh, every episode I did on The West Wing, that was the case, um, which was which was pretty great. This was certainly for a young writer, uh, although it could have its moments. Uh, I was on set for Stormy Present. And I remember um, I had no idea what I was doing. And so James Cromwell actually was um, was very good on his lines, but was switching up like that, you know, and story present, as you know, is v- very dense. <laughs> and he was calling something Middle East instead of Arabian Peninsula, which nobody cared about except the newbie writer who had no idea what he was doing. And uh, I kept trying to tell our dialogue coach that maybe she should give this to him. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't want to. And then on turnaround, she said, well, why don't you go talk to him? And this was a scene that was like Cromwell and uh, Martin and John Goodman, right? And right. so like three huge, heavy, major league, you know, actors. And I go up and I start talking to Cromwell. And I didn't understand that, you know, talking to actors is not like having an intellectual conversation with a professor. It's, you know, <laughs> you, you have to it's be. It's nothing you know, like that. <laughs> and so, and so he starts getting heated and I don't know why he's getting heated, but I, and I'm trying to pull out and suddenly I feel Alex Graves, you know, grabbing me by the back of the neck and saying, we're all good here, James, just keep doing what you're doing. Like sitting me down in my chair <laughs> uh, at well, another no. time when I, I thought I was going to get fired.
1: <laughs> I'm with you though. Hey, the script's the script.
3: Uh, well, you know. Uh, That's the job. <laughs> That's the gig.
1: But so no, no nightmares like that
0: on this episode.
3: No, although I will say um, sort of a nightmare that turned into a dream, which is that, so I wound up flying myself to Camden Yards because I wanted to be part of that. And my parents are from Philly and uh, my father and mom came down, uh, bought tickets to the, to the game because we shot for an actual game at Camden Yards and it was raining Uh, and we had Uh one day to get this shot. And it was like a five-hour rain delay. And what's funny was when we were prepping, and we actually, we shot the tunnel walk. That's all below Camden Yards, and then the walk up onto the field, and then the field. And when we were prepping, it was actually, it was fine out. And then it just started raining just as we were about to start to shoot. So we wound up waiting for like five hours. And it was inordinately fun at first, because like when we went out to shoot and, you know, Martin went up on the mound and I had had my dad, my dad was a catcher when he was like in middle school. And so I had him bring, I had bought him a catcher's mitt, which I had him bring down. And so I got behind home plate and got the catch for Martin when he was doing so great. Which was pretty cool. And then... And then we wound up having this rain delay and like, we're all like, oh my God, are we going to get this off? And Chris Messiano is, you know, tearing his hair out. And Martin grabs me and says, let's throw the ball around. And so in that tunnel where we shot that walk and talk with, with Leo, Martin and I wound up having a catch for like an hour, which was just like, I mean, it was surreal and like super, just like kind of great. Like, here I am, this is my first year writing for television, and I'm having a baseball catch with Martin Sheen, right, <laughs> while we're waiting for the rain to pass. Um, and eventually, the rain did pass. The, the The crowd was actually a little, it was not a full house because of the rain and, and whatnot and because a lot of people had left. So we sort of had to, you'll note the camera is pretty close on Martin because the wide shot you would like there's like, the stadium's half empty. But uh, we waited it out and then we got the shot and then stayed and watched the game, which was pretty great. So that was a pretty great day.
1: Was Martin feeling any pressure getting up there and uh, throwing from the mound?
3: No, he had a much better arm than Bartlett did. So
1: I thought that might be the case. <laughs> uh, yeah.
3: We had fun, that, that, uh, the thing where he has to throw and hit the lamp and where that was actually a lot of fun too. I will say something and Dulé may be mad at me for this, but um, Dulé is a wonderful tap dancer and very athletic but did not grow up playing baseball, grew up playing soccer. So if there's someone who has a motion issue, right, it's less, it's less Martin and more Dulé. So
1: actually... I noticed that we're not seeing a lot of uh, delay <laughs> throwing the ball back. We're hearing it and then seeing the ball go back to Martin.
3: Yeah, his form is a little... It's not what you would expect from from Charlie. Uh, so we had to shoot around that a little bit. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> I suspect as much. I love those scenes. Those scenes are great. And I I like the marrying of sort of the sublime and the ridiculous and uh, discussing actual U.S. foreign policy in a tricky situation as the president in a bulletproof vest practices
3: pitching. It's great writing. It's a great scene. I mean, you know, to me, that's it's it's all stems from Aaron, right? It's what Aaron does so well in really all of his seasons, but the first two seasons in particular, those scenes and the spy scene similarly were the most fun to write.
0: I love that scene, the, the hallway scene, as a response to this idea of John Wells saying, oh, the president needs to be more active. Right. That you can actually add this physicality to him going through, trying to figure out what, his, what he's gonna do, and then have his pitching mirror his level of decisiveness. Right. It was r- really wonderfully realized.
2: i really like to bomb the whole damn place. Gaza? Gaza, the West Bank. Take out the whole Arabian Peninsula while
3: we're at it. Right. You know, it's funny. So uh, this episode uh, and The Supremes both got nominated for the WGA, which um, a friend of mine, uh, this guy Michael Borkow, said at the time, like, you should enjoy this. It's your peers, right? And it really is. It's, it, it, it's, it's a nice thing, right? And um, I don't think I really appreciated it at the time. But John Sarah Young appreciated it. And he bought a flask Uh, Because he and Deborah and I drank bourbon, uh, drank Blanton's uh, on occasion, he bought a flask for me and a flask for Deborah because Deborah's episode, The Supreme's also got nominated and Deborah actually won. So he bought a flask for Deborah that said The Supreme for Deborah, who really was the Supreme, as you all will see over the next two seasons, and bought a flask for me that said The Big Fat One, uh, (laughs) which is part (laughs) of the slide.
2: And just waiting for me to play my role and chuck a big fat one right down the middle.
3: That's great. Right, as he manages to, um, so yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, again, that, that first season of the West Wing for me was my first year in writing grad school, and what a wonderful group of teachers I had.
1: Uh, Another thing I'll point out, which we often point out, not only is the show uh, itself evergreen and the issues that it deals with, but uh, there's also a strange overlap with our podcast show as episodes come out. As I was rewatching this episode, a news notification came up on my computer with the headline saying, "Uh, Palestinian infiltrates from Gaza sets greenhouse on fire in Israeli community. And I clicked on the story, and then uh, it added the additional reports. Say that Palestinians threw explosive devices at Israel Defense Forces soldiers. Then there were uh, reports that the army responded. That one Palestinian has been killed, thirty-seven wounded. According that's according to the uh, to Hamas's health ministry in Gaza. And it's just it's just a constant reminder on a lot of fronts how little progress is made, and also just how this show it's ever pertinent.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's upsetting to me. Like, there are so many issues that we grapple with today that we were grappling with 15 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. This is one of them. Back at this point when we wrote this show, it's possible Israel had a little more of a leg to stand on. You know, and they really were challenged to find a partner for peace, as we talk about Arafat was, it it had been all there in 93 and then it just slipped away. It's hard because I I really feel like, you know, both sides are definitely bad actors at this point. And um, I haven't studied the issue in a while, so I feel sort of a little off base saying it, but I do think You need to sacrifice. Both sides need to sacrifice, and both sides need to be willing to sacrifice. It's the same issue with climate change. I mean, that's the other one that comes. You know, like there was just this huge article about how you know we really knew all this stuff, and I've I've looked at this in detail, wondering if there's a story there. Like you know, back in the seventies, eighties, nineties, we knew, right? We knew what was happening, and it was a lot less dire, and we it would have been more easy to do something, and we just weren't really willing to make the sacrifices necessary. And I think that that's something that, again, it was what drew me to the show. I mean, Aaron wanted to celebrate the values that made our country great, which is hard work. Like, all these guys work very, very hard, and they're all very, very bright, and they all try their best to proceed not as is easy, but as is in accordance with American values and really understanding what those values are, which are democratic values, which are inclusive values, you know, um, which, again, sadly, are the opposite of, I think what's going on right now.
1: That's for sure.
0: One of the things that you have one of the leaders do, uh, at the end of this, Chairman Farad pulls a move on the Bartlett administration that they've actually used themselves.
2: Chairman Farad, he's on TV. He's thanking us for inviting him and Prime Minister Mukherjad to a summit with the Israelis. We didn't invite him. We haven't even formally invited Mukherjad. He's publicly accepted our invitation to Camp David.
0: I love how Delicious! that irony was, because it's the same thing they did to Seth Gillette earlier in season three, you know, when they were trying to get, figure out how to get him on the Blue Ribbon Commission, because they invited him, he would say no, and and they couldn't have that, and so they just announced his acceptance. um.
3: (laughs) You know, it's funny. I don't know if we thought about that when we did it, and I can't even remember where that twist came from. I didn't remember it. And so I was like, oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) So it's a pretty good twist. And it sets up, what it sets up nicely is, you know, we do two episodes on Camp David. And actually there were teeny little bits, like literally maybe a half page. There were teeny little bits of that first back script that made it into one of the two Camp David episodes.
0: That's great. I was actually wondering if, um, yeah, if you talked about your original spec script while you were working on these two uh, episodes.
3: I don't think any of the original spec script made it into this episode. But again, like, and and literally, it's probably like, I think it's one scene from that spec that made it into one of the two. And Mark Goffman, uh, I think Lauren Schmidt-Histrick, and I did a bunch of research for John on the Camp David episodes, which were a real challenge, but which were fun to work on in, in season
0: six. Once you figured out that this was gonna be the finale, how far ahead were you already planning in the writer's room for the next season?
3: No, not much, you know, John did this thing. Uh, this is another good story. So John did this thing every year where he would have us, he'd have all the writers go to Hawaii for a retreat prior to the season. And that's really when we would beat out the season. And, you know, look, that sounds amazing, right? Like, I joined the West Wing. I'm brand new to the show. And I'm going to Hawaii. And it's, it's Kauai, right? It's the cool island, right? <laughs> and, like, super exciting, right? Except it was the I, I, it was the most stressful week of my entire <laughs> life, right? Because here I am. Like, and it's all these writers who have all these huge credits. And here I am, like, who's never worked in the business before. And I'm terrified, right? And so, like, the first 3 days of a week in hawaii you know and we're all staying in this mission house so like you can't get away from anybody <laughs> like you know i think i was rooming with mark goffman like you know it's terrifying right and so like and so the first 3 days i don't say a word in these rooms <laughs> right cuz i'm just scared to death right and then at some point <laughs> i you know we're taking a lunch break and i walk up to my boss john wells and i say to john i say i, I hope it's okay i haven't said anything i mean i'm just i'm you know and he's like oh he's like you don't want to say anything for like six months i mean he's like the worst (laughs) worst thing you can do is say something dumb and then everybody thinks you're an idiot
2: (laughs) (laughs) that really takes the
3: pressure off which was which, on the one hand, took the pressure off, and the other hand was, you know, so, uh, and of course, then I, you know, had to say something the next day. But, um, <laughs> but uh, it actually was really kind of him because it did take the pressure off, and he was making a point, like, that you're here to learn. And it, it really, like, that's the wonderful thing that John did, and I'm sure still does with staff writers. You're getting paid to learn. Our first episode was um, about the 25th Amendment, right, because Glenn Allen and becomes the president right because Bartlett steps down and takes himself out right and so like John had me my first assignment was write me a memo on like well how would that work and what would you call Glenn Allen Walken and you know would you call him Mr. President would you call him Mr. Acting President blah blah I wrote, like, a 25-page memo with, like, 17 pitches for, like, ways this would be a really cool, you know, thing to do with the 25th Amendment in your episode. None of it made it into a scratch, right, because it was all useless, right, because I didn't know what I was doing. And that was the wonderful thing about John is he was really bringing in young writers to teach them, right, and to let them have an opportunity to learn at the footsteps of all these really great writers and then hopefully be able to contribute by the end of the first year right? Or by the second year. But so to answer your question, I don't think we had a whole lot planned for the next season other than when John decided we'll slot this in for the finale. The lessons I learned, I mean, it's funny, most people say they go to law school and they learn a different way of thinking. I think I went to John Wells screenwriting school and learned a different way of thinking.
0: I didn't get to ask the second half of my two-parter of, you know, what was the hardest part about making the, the episode? My other part is after re-watching it now, do you have a favorite moment from this episode? whether it's the writing or the performance or uh, just how
3: something was realized? I would say, like, I'd like to think that I've grown as a writer over the last 14 years, you know? And so what's not surprising is how many of the moments I want to strangle myself (laughs) because they're so dense. (laughs) I'm like, really? Come on. Could you, like, lose half the words in that, please? But then there are other bits that I'm actually like, wow. Okay. And look... A lot of them work because Brad is so good, right? Like, Brad does comic moments like that better than anyone. You know, so it's less the writing and more the performance. But I'm surprised that some of the stuff actually works. I will say, you know, it's funny. I'm working on this anthology television show about the Oval Office. I want to pick a different president each year and show Democracy in Crisis. I think it's a maybe a good way to comment on what's going on today and also a fun way to get back into the Oval Office. And as I've been writing the pilot... I suddenly got this like, oh, I know what this is like, (laughs) right? And so it's been a lot of like... I've been here. You know, Deborah Kahn used to look through my scripts and she'd see dense writing and dense writing and dense writing. Then she'd get to a page where it was line, 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 you know, which is the way Aaron writes. And she's like, that's a scene. (laughs) And so, and, and by the way, that's the most fun, it's fun to write that stuff, right? When you can actually get that banner going and it actually still feels like these are real characters, you know, like, and so I've been playing with that, which has been a lot of fun.
1: That sounds great. You're a terrific writer, and I, I've been very pleased, not surprised, but very uh, delighted to see your, your subsequent success.
3: That's, that's very kind. I've been, uh, I've been very lucky and very fortunate to work with some great people, as I was back then.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, and, um, and congratulations on First Man and everything else and everything to come. Thanks, guys.
1: That does it for another episode, another season of the West Wing Weekly. We're halfway through <laughs>
0: our show. It's very exciting. Thanks so much to all of you for sticking with us for five seasons. A very special thanks to the people who make this show possible alongside Josh and me, Nick Song, our research assistant, Margaret Miller, our editor, Zach McNeese, our post-production supervisor. They're the best in the biz. Next week, we have a special episode for you, a special bonus episode. While you get ready for Thanksgiving, we're going to be talking about our other favorite political show, Parks and Recreation.
1: Hooray. A show that you urged me to watch on this very podcast itself. That's true. And I love Parks and Rec. It had somehow just gotten by me. And now I've certainly seen every episode. And I would hazard a guess that I've seen every episode uh, more than once. It became a real family favorite. And we all watched together
0: over and over. But don't worry, it is still a West Wing Weekly episode. Our conversation is a deep look at all of the ways in which the West Wing influenced Parks and Recreation. That's right. Our guests are Michael Schur, who co-created the show, Adam Scott, and Rob Lowe. So look out for that next week, and then um, enjoy your Thanksgiving. We're going to be off the week after that mm-hmm. as we get ready for season six, and we'll be back in December with our sixth season. The
1: sixth six Sheeks sixth sheep's sick. What he said. <laughs> In the meantime, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook, reach out to us at thewestwingweekly.com.
0: You can follow our guest Josh Singer on Twitter at jsinger10.
1: You can give us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, nice. If you want to give us less than a five-star review, I'm not sure where you're supposed to do that, but you can. I'm sure you can Google it. <laughs> so you can buy our merch at westwingweekly.com slash merch and it makes a
0: wonderful present for all of you who are getting ready for the holidays you've got a variety of options uh to give to your favorite west wing fan or just give it to yourself in closing thanks to you josh for also sticking with me for five seasons
1: thank you rishi for coming up with the idea for this podcast and <laughs> lying to me about how little work it would be
0: <laughs> anytime <laughs> And if you'd like to look for a new podcast, check out Our Siblings at Radiotopia.fm, a project from PRX, a curated collection of excellent cutting-edge podcasts, Radiotopia.fm.
1: All right. See you on the other side. Okay. Okay.
3: What's next? Radiotopia.